Today, I'm joined with Filipino political journalist, multimedia anchor, and educator Christian Isguera. He's the host of the political podcast Facts First, in which he tackles current issues and discusses the danger of disinformation. This year, Mr. Isguera was awarded the Marshall McLuhan Fellowship for his work on this phenomenon, allowing him to travel to Canada and present educational lectures questioning how the media can help minimize the threats and spreads of disinformation, especially in a time when truth and historical facts are being compromised. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Esquera. Thanks, Marion. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's an honor and a privilege. <laughs> the pleasure is all mine. Firstly, let's get into the nature of disinformation. Well, basically, when you talk about disinformation, this is a plague. This is a problem. This is uh, an epidemic that is affecting uh, practically all countries. Because basically, when you talk about disinformation, this is uh, a kind of... Uh, this is a practice which normally, especially in the context of political news, is quite systematic. So there's an intention to actually spread wrong information, malicious information, uh, to to destroy, let's say, rep- reputations, to manipulate public perception, to to um to achieve certain dubious ends. So compared to let's say misinformation, the difference lies with the intention or the motive. So misinformation can be an honest mistake. And how does this relate to the Philippines today? I understand that you previously worked for a Filipino broadcasting giant by the name of ABS-CBN, which was forced off the air by the National Telecommunications Commissions and blocked from franchise renewal by Congress. So what is the current political climate and effect of this government-led media siege in the Philippines? Actually, the situation is quite bad. And you have to understand that the the Philippines uh, ranks, or Filipinos basically, uh, among, if not the the top uh, users of uh, the internet, basically we spend the most time online. And in the Philippines, we're talking here of uh, around 84 million Filipinos on Facebook. And of that number, 70, 73% actually get their news uh, from Facebook. So social media is a very strong, uh, very popular source of information in the Philippines. Now, the Philippines should also be understood as, uh, unfortunately, um, the area or the country where many of these uh, strategists when it comes to disinformation actually experimented. They they tried, uh, it's considered as patient zero in this disinformation problem, the Philippines. I would call it the, the Petri dish, meaning the laboratory where they tried different techniques or strategies, which one worked, which ones uh, didn't actually. So we saw this in the Philippines several years ago. And um, there was even a time when those who actually experimented in disinformation um, practices in the Philippines exported those skills outside of the Philippines. So right now we're seeing many of those practices in other countries and many of them were actually uh, developed and quote-unquote perfected in the Philippines. So this is a very big problem because uh, especially when when you talk about journalists or the, the free press, we are naturally at the forefront forefront of this problem. So this is something that we'll de- that we deal with every day. And you mentioned the the shutdown of ABS-CBN which is the uh, uh which used to be the biggest and most influential um broadcast network in the Philippines. It was shut down upon the orders of the president of the Philippines then in 2020. The president then was President uh, Rodrigo Duterte. And uh, of course, there were questions uh, raised by by President Duterte and his people from Congress saying that there were certain legal violations or violations of law. But if you think about it, if you look at it objectively, that particular issue actually uh, was heavily affected by disinformation. So those who wanted ABS-CBN shut down on free TV and free radio 
they also had to make use of uh, disinformation strategies, claiming that there were certain tax liabilities, there were certain violations, etc., etc. So that was just one example of how disinformation could actually uh, affect a particular, let's say, sector or segment of society, in this case, uh, the institution of the media. And when you speak of such strategists who diffuse misinformation in the Philippines, who are you referring to exactly? These are basically, uh, there were studies conducted by Filipino scholars before, uh, especially during the 2016 presidential elections, uh, presidential election, when President Duterte was elected into office. That was actually one instance where we saw how powerful social media campaign could be in terms of electing uh, a president in the Philippines. And then, of course, that was replicated in 2019 and also in 2022. Now, when it came to the 2016 experience, the uh, the studies conducted by, by Filipino scholars actually pointed to this uh, so-called architects of networked disinformation. Architects of this networked disinformation basically were composed of um, uh, PR strategists, uh, PR executives, uh, PR consultants who had their own companies, big companies that were tapped, let's say, for, for what have you, to, to, to endorse, let's say, products, uh, to run election campaigns. But on the side, it turned out that some of them were actually running troll farms and uh, networked disinformation, meaning disinformation campaigns, meaning uh, that was part of the uh, activities that they used to do, but of course that was illegal, right? But there was a strategy when it comes to tapping micro-influencers, people in the grassroots to spread this information. But of course, later on, that particular strategy evolved for the worse. So meaning they started targeting the so-called micro-influencers heavily. Uh, you, do, you didn't have to have, for example, a million followers on Facebook, or on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. You could have as, as, uh, as few as 1,000 followers, but those 1,000 followers could be uh, very much... Uh, passionate about the issues that you that you throw out there. And then they also focus on uh, even chat groups, private chat groups, Viber. Viber is very popular in the Philippines. So this is one of the examples where they could come up with heavy influence, which could actually shape decisions and uh, thinking when it came to elections. So lately, or more, more recently, we saw uh, th this was the product of another study coming from uh, scholars from the University of the Philippines, it turned out, it turned out that there were so-called meta-partisan um, news, quote-unquote, uh, ecosystems, uh, in particular on YouTube. So basically, when you talk about this so-called meta-partisan news, quote-unquote, ecosystems, these are accounts run by ordinary people. Um, it, they didn't include or involve heavy production, unlike in the regular uh, news programs, uh, uh, held in studios, you could broadcast from your living room, uh, from your kitchen, anywhere. And then what happens is that anybody could come up with a commentary, pick out a video, let's say about the candidate and destroy that candidate. And that particular video could come up with, could could um, could basically attract even more followers or views compared to the actual news program or the issue that was basically the subject of that uh, of that. Uh, uh, commentary. So if you look at YouTube, there's there's a lot of that. It has actually become an ecosystem and many people are being uh, are very much influenced by those. So we can look at social media platforms as battlegrounds for misinformation in which truly any user with even a relatively low following can spread fake news like you mentioned. 
Today, even internet trolls can widely push disinformation, which politicians actually use throughout their campaign. For example, in 2019, internet trolls were hired by a candidate running for the Filipino Senate to create not just a number of fake fan accounts, but also an entire virtual reality, portraying a fervent base of supporters for the candidate. Can you discuss the role of the line troll networks and their impact on democracy? Actually, the line troll networks are the, um, this is the term which is used by those uh, actually running the so-called troll farms. But generally speaking, people know them as uh, troll farms. But within the industry, uh, they are called LTNs or line troll networks. So line troll networks, unfortunately, have become uh, campaign essentials in the Philippines, meaning if you want to run uh, a credible election campaign, whether for a local position or for a national position, basically, it's uh, difficult to admit but it's really unfortunate that you need to have an LTN and not just one. Because number one, what is an LTN? An LTN usually is composed of 50 trolls working under one moderator. The moderator basically runs uh, a group of 50 people. Each of those uh, 50 uh, trolls can come up with their own different accounts, meaning 5, 10, 15, 20, run by a single person. So imagine a tree headed by a moderator. Now, how much, let's say, does a single troll uh, account earns monthly? I, I looked at the um, the value in terms of Canadian dollars, around $500 uh, a month. So in the context of the Philippines, that's uh, within the vicinity of the um, basic uh, salary monthly for ordinary Filipinos, basically the the minimum wage. But you have to understand that that is not a full-time job. So that is only a side hustle. So many of these people working in those uh, LTNs or line troll networks have their own day jobs. And of course, the moderator who runs the show can earn as much as $600 or $650 uh, Canadian dollars, depending on the arrangement. And a moderator running an LTN works under a strategist who actually is the one who deals with the client, usually politicians. So let's say you want to run for president or for senator or for mayor. It depends on the, the battleground. But to be sure, a single line troll network won't be enough to, to attack your opponents and to, do, and to defend your candidate against possible attacks coming from many different directions. So you need big money. So given your claim that troll farms are essential for political campaigns in the Philippines today, do you believe they were used in the recent presidential elections in which Marcos Jr. was voted in? Very much. That was quite obvious. Very much used. But uh, if people were asking, uh, whenever people ask or claim that Marcos won simply because of disinformation, I don't think so. There are many different factors involved. But this information uh, with the involvement of those troll farms or line troll networks, that was a big factor. So it was quite obvious because during the campaign, he didn't have to, let's say, specify his campaign platform or uh, detail any promise that, that he had. He just talked about unity. He, he never bothered to show up in legitimate debates. He just picked and, choose, uh, and chose uh, interviews that he accommodated, basically interviews with... Uh, with like-minded people, <laughs> people who he knew wouldn't ask tough questions, interviews with celebrities. But when it came to legitimate debates, he never showed up. And he could afford to do that because he was leading in the survey. So doing so would have been risky for his candidacy. And in fact, 
it was his uh, it was the uh, people on social media the so-called trolls and his loyalists who were doing the the responding for uh, on his behalf they were they were answering on his behalf so clearly misinformation is widely affecting filipino journalism and politics but it has even become dangerous Last month, Percy Lapid, a radio journalist and known critic of Filipino political leaders, was shot dead in Manila. And two months ago, political broadcaster Renato Blanco was stabbed to death in a central province. Today, the Philippines is even considered one of the most dangerous countries for journalists. So my question is, does this political climate ever scare you into self-censorship? Do you ever refrain from criticizing the government on your podcast or elsewhere? In my case, I don't. And that was the reason why I was uh, fired from the big network. <laughs> I was very comfortable then because that was basically a very prominent job. Uh, I had a uh, nightly political talk show, which was considered as hard-hitting. And that was also the reason why I got the boot or I was shown the door. But fortunately, uh, um, there, there, there's a platform available to me, a podcast which I began in 2019 then in 2020 and then uh, after I, I lost my job uh, at the big network uh, early this year i decided to turn my podcast into a live political talk show uh, streamed online thrice a week so happily i'm independent uh, i'm happier now because of the sense of liberation and there's no news owner or media owner who would uh, often uh, breathe behind my back and tell me which particular people not to interview or people to interview. And this That was a very uh, painful process in terms of resisting the self-censorship that was happening in my previous network. Now, I, I don't ex um, experience any of that sort. But don't, don't get me wrong. So as a journalist, I've been doing this for 22 years, meaning journalism. I mean, I also do self-restraint. But that's different from self-censorship, meaning... I try to be fair, not to unnecessarily criticize certain people. I just focus on the facts. Concerning the media's power in minimizing disinformation, what tools would you say you use on your podcast to provide your audience with objectivity and truth? Basically, my main platform in my podcast is, aside from the podcast itself, uh, on video, I make use of YouTube, Facebook, also Twitter. Uh, but the main uh, platform, of course, is YouTube. And I noticed that in this campaign against disinformation, one important challenge that we need to confront is the need or the challenge of uh, or the difficulty of connecting with the people. Because when I was with a big network before, the, 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 the language used was straight English. And that had a particular um, audience. So basically the policymakers and subscribers to that uh, cable network similar to CNN, but the, that was called ANC, the ABS-CBN News Channel. But now when I started uh, doing this podcast more regularly and as a live program, I decided to shift in Filipino, which is the official language. I tried to make it, to make it more conversational. And I think uh, that is much better because uh, I was able to reach more people. And I could see that in the analytics, in the data available in, <clears throat> on YouTube. So I could see um, which particular segment of the audience is actually somehow getting that appeal or so that's one of the tools and of course i tried to somehow experiment it's all about uh it's mostly hits and misses right you can you, you can't come up with a, a single formula and claim that this is this is the the most effective formula so i've been also trying to do some experiments 
So number one, for example, people are, people nowadays, especially in the Philippines, are quite sensitive when it comes to anyone telling them what to do or telling them, let me educate you about, let's say, how to vote. That is quite condescending for a lot of Filipinos. They would feel insulted. So similar to when, uh, let's say, journalists like me would say, hey, the information that you believe in is fake. So if you make it appear that they're stupid, even if they know that uh, what they believe in is wrong, they would actually keep embracing that because of that emotional attachment. So that in itself is a challenge. And also, uh, I'm trying to, uh, to, to, to consider other modes in terms of um, spreading um, or, or somehow combating disinformation. And not necessarily to, to, to uh, confront the disinformation problem head on. Because sometimes if you talk about, for example, in conversations like this, if I say, okay, let's talk about disinformation, there's a segment of the population that could automatically be uh, turned off by the conversation itself. So I'm looking for ways now to somehow go through the back door to talk about disinformation without talking about disinformation. You know what I mean? So this is uh, some of the uh, approaches that I'm trying to consider uh, lately. Do you ever find it difficult to reach a larger audience because of people's deep-rooted political pride and attachments to the ideology like you mentioned? In the United States, for example, Americans tend to either watch Fox News, which reports in favor of the Republican Party, or CNN, which is more leftist, but they don't usually mix the two. In the context of the Philippines, it's hard to believe a Marcos loyalist would be drawn to your podcast, for example. So how can they educate themselves if they don't make the effort to listen in the first place? That's true, because uh, spe that's especially true in the Philippines, because the situation now in the Philippines, similar to the U.S., is very much pop polarized. And we're seeing that uh, every day. We're becoming more and more polarized as a society. And that's a good point that you mentioned. For example, in the case of my channel, how many Marcos loyalists would actually bother to watch my, my, my broadcast or my uh, online streaming program? There are some loyalists who go to my channel, but not necessarily to listen, but only to attack, to spread hate messages. Before, I used to also counter them, uh, try to fact, ch fact check them on the spot. And I must admit, uh, some were even uh, insulted before but then later on i start i started to change uh tact so i try to converse with them I, I i don't i don't actually block them especially if i see that they are real people uh real people who happen to be loyalists or believing in a particular set of uh, political beliefs which are not necessarily true but when it comes to actual uh, trolls meaning fake accounts I, I i block them but before i block them I explain to the audience what the facts are. So that's a really uh, difficult situation now. And uh, there there are no easy answers in terms of dealing with this. And I think uh, the basic challenge really is to how is to answer this question. How do we establish civil conversations now without, without having to fight? Perhaps we can start by not talking about politics first, right? Because the moment that they see my face and say, ah, this guy, they, many of them have branded me as anti-Marcos, which I am not. I'm just focusing on the facts and the details. But perhaps if you find certain common grounds to, to start a civil conversation, that would be a very good start. And then later on, the clarifications uh, would come, I suppose.
I agree, especially since as a Gen Z, I grew up with platforms like YouTube and TikTok, for example, where we really witnessed the polarization of publics, especially through micro-influencers and just influencers in general who represent different sides of the same political issue. It's clear that these sides aren't interested in listening to the other's inputs, which really complicates the development of any open dialogue and ultimately even hinders the fight against disinformation, in my opinion. So do you think anyone can fight disinformation or should journalists exclusively hold that position? No, 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 no. Anyone. Everyone should fight disinformation. And one question that I used to get while here in Canada was um, a couple of people I think have asked me, how can others help? Because I think it should be a multidisciplinary approach. It's not just the, the battle of journalists because anyone can be a victim as well as a spreader of disinformation. So we need all the help that we can get from the academe, from accountants, from historians, from the government, most especially from many different directions. But we can start with this, something that we can achieve uh, and, uh, in the immediate term. In trying to address this problem of disinformation, we can start by not adding to the problem. Simply by not adding to the problem would be of big help in this campaign against disinformation. For instance, if you see something on Facebook and you feel passionately about it, that confirms your bias. If that immediately confirms your bias, perhaps that should uh, get you thinking, is this true? By not, spread, by, by, by not sharing it right away, that in itself is a help. Okay, so let's say if a relative of yours, earlier on our way to the hotel, we saw a motorcade. I think they were rightists here in Canada uh, promoting the anti-vax movement, right? Yes. There are many different ways to approach that. That, that. that is quite difficult, right? So is posting a photo or a video of that movement, would that help in itself? Or would it somehow create some unnecessary, unnecessary problems? Meaning people might think, oh, there's an anti-vax movement. My point is, if you share a video of that without context, you might end up helping that cause inadvertently. Right, so allowing the, people to form their yeah. own opinions. Yeah, also. so so there has to be a lot of explanation if, if at all you're going to spread that or to, to, to post something about it. So it's something that we should all consider. Start by not being part of the problem. <laughs> and then <I> like <laughs> let's move forward from that. Yes, I agree. So on another note... um. In uh, your exit message to ANC listeners in March 2022, you said, let journalists help you, not the politicians, not the political operators, because disinformation brings only death and decay to democracy. Do you think all politicians are untrustworthy? Most of them, but not all. Yeah. And on a completely unrelated note, but current events... Earlier in the month, tech mogul Elon Musk closed his purchase of the social media platform Twitter. He's made some modifications, including users' ability to now purchase the blue verified user checkmark. Originally, this blue checkmark symbolized credibility, telling users that the account they're viewing is indeed the said company or the said public figure. But now anyone can impersonate anyone. Do you think disinformation tools will be enough to combat these new challenges? <laughs> So far, I'm still in a wait-and-see atti uh, attitude when it comes to how uh, Elon Musk would actually run the show on Twitter. But so far, there have been some red flags or things that can be considered as uh, disconcerting. 
like what you said, the uh, availability of the blue check mark because I myself was rejected the first <laughs> time I applied for that, and someone told me, eh, just uh, just just wait, uh, try once more, or perhaps you would get approved after three tries. So in my case, I said I won't bother to apply for that anymore. And right now, it's something that you can purchase. I think there are other uh, um, parts of Twitter that would need improvement, but not that. Right. Because that that is supposed to be the protection of legitimate uh, accounts, account holders, in particular, uh, journalists. But if you're going to make it available as a product, so who would benefit from that? Basically, those with big money. And these people with big money are those who could also run their own disinformation campaigns. So that could inadvertently help them in their cause of spreading disinformation. So I I hope Twitter would seriously rethink that. Everyone is affected by this problem of disinformation. The only difference is uh, is with the degree or the scale of the problem. So let's learn from each other and try to be more sophisticated with our approach in this case. <laughs>